Git is the most popular version control system. If you have been programming for less than a decade, it's likely that you haven't used any other method of version control. The Git workflow of a software team defines how that team collaborates, builds, and ships software. In today's episode, Tim Pedersen joins us. He's a developer advocate at Atlassian, and he's been building software around Git for many years. On today's episode, we talk about strategies for Git, including branching, merging, continuous integration, and software as a service. And he also contrasts Git with several of the other version control technologies. If you're a fan of Software Engineering Daily, we would love it if you filled out our listener survey. It can be found on our website, softwareengineeringdaily.com, or in our newsletter if you subscribe to that. We really want to know what you think, and if you fill out the survey, it would really help us improve. Uh, we know that only a fraction of the listeners have filled out the survey, and we realize you know, you're not obligated to fill it out, but it would really help us out. And um, we put a lot of effort into this, and we want to make sure that effort gets allocated in the right direction. So... Please let us know what you want to hear more of and what you want to hear less of. Tim Pedersen is a developer advocate at Atlassian. Tim, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks very much, Jeff. So today's conversation is about Git. So let's start off with a simple question. Why should we use Git? Well, there's a few different reasons. It sort of depends on where you're coming from. Um, if you're used to using a centralized version control system uh, like Subversion or uh, CVS or, or something even more archaic, um, then the, the kind of the obvious advantages of moving to a distributed version control system like Git, uh, first of all, the, the speed of the thing. Um, so the problem with centralized version control uh, is that every time you need to interact with your repository, so if you're going to create a commit or uh, maybe rewrite some history, uh, or if you need to uh, pull some changes that someone else has made on the server, uh, then you have to uh, call out over the network. Um, with Git, uh, most of the time, you're actually just interacting with your local copy of the repository. Um, and this is because Git is a, a distributed version control system. So, you, so when you uh, pull down a repository, you're actually pulling down not just uh, the latest version of your code, but the entire history of that repository as well. Um, so that means that uh, the, the actual initial clone can take a little bit longer. Longer, uh, but uh, after that, all of your interactions with the repository are much quicker. So let's get some historical context on this historically centralized version control system. So what is it? I mean, you, you know, you touched on this. There's a, there's a centralized server that hosts all the, the that hosts the version control. Why why were systems built like this in the past, and how did we move beyond it towards a distributed version control system? Uh, that's a good question, actually. So I'm not sure historically why we started out with centralized version control. I mean, I, I think uh, possibly it might come from a, maybe a slightly misguided view of security, like this idea that you want to have your full repository history in one place. Um, the other, another reason why it may have started out in a centralized manner is uh, 
traditionally, if, if you wanted to keep the full history of your repository in one place, um, then that can you know uh, potentially take a significant amount of disk as well. Uh, so for so Git up until relatively recently hasn't been particularly good at tracking projects that contain uh, extremely large files or extremely large binary files. Um, although that's something that's being being tackled with a couple of extensions to Git these days. Um, whereas SVN up until relatively recently has been better if you've had to do things like track uh, you know large binaries like jar files or images or audio files or something like that. And so let's understand this in uh, more of a practical context. So I'm a developer working on a software project. How does my experience working on a distributed version control system like Git, how does that contrast with the experience that I would have working on a centralized version control system? Uh, so, so I already covered the speed thing. So, I mean, your interactions with the repository sure. are significantly faster. Um, the other thing that you'll notice with, uh, with Git is that because you can create commits locally as opposed to subversion, where if you every time you commit your code, you're essentially publishing that to the rest of your team. Um, this leaves you a little bit more free to uh, experiment um, with, with your code. So you get rather than having these kind of large atomic commits, uh, where you know you might have an entire feature or a, you know a large a large uh, what would usually be like a large set of patches, um, that you can just create that locally and uh, and then potentially experiment with that. Um, so that one of the kind of the upshots if in a practical sense is that uh, teams who work with Subversion often are working directly against just a single uh, branch, so something like Trunk, and you get this pattern where they're paranoid about breaking the, the build. Um, so we used to have kind of a single, about five years ago, I was working on one of the, uh, the Fisheye and Crucible team at Atlassian. Um, and we had this like little red plastic hat that you have to wear, wear if you are, <laughs> if you broke the build. Um, and so basically what this meant is that every developer basically ran the full suite of tests locally before they uh, committed their code to make sure that they weren't going to break the build and slow down the rest of the team. Now with Git, um, you can, one for one, you can create commits locally. Um, but the, another awesome feature of Git is the fact that you have this nice uh, method of branching and merging. Um, so you could actually create a separate commit, have that on a separate isolated branch, push that to the server, and then see whether the tests pass or fail there, and then eventually merge that back into into your uh, your main line of code. So you've touched on a lot of things, and we will get into. Uh, more granularity about these different features of a Git workflow. But before we get into that, I want to talk about one other system that is somewhat popular, which is Mercurial. Uh, some successful organizations like Facebook use Mercurial. And I have to admit, I've never worked with it. So what is Mercurial and how does that compare to Git? Uh, so Mercurial is another uh, relatively popular uh, distributed version control system. In fact, I'd probably say Git and Mercurial are the only ones with significant developer populations using them. Uh, so uh, Bitbucket Cloud, our um, online hosting service uh, for Git repos, does also support Mercurial. And our, our population there is about 10% Mercurial repositories and 90% Git repos. Um, now, these days, like functionally, Mercurial and Git are fairly similar. Um, there's a Git kind of only has one concept of branching. Uh, Mercurial has two. Uh, in fact, there's a Mercurial sprint this year, this weekend, uh, which is going to potentially introduce a third uh, method of branching, which will bring it slightly more in line with how Git does things. Um, they're both uh, relatively comparable, I think, in terms of performance these days. Um, I think one of the the reasons that 
Google and I think Facebook have been looking at uh, using Mercurial uh, as opposed to uh, to Git uh, is due to the ability to kind of uh, extend it and the fact that I've got a, a fair few, well, they've been hiring several Mercurial developers onto their staff. Um, so, so the ability to extend Mercurial itself. Yeah. So, I mean, Git does have a fairly sophisticated uh, extension model as well. Um, I'm actually, I'm not super knowledgeable about uh, kind of uh, Mercurial's large uh, well, large repo support, but but I, I believe that both Google and Facebook have what we call a, a mono repo, which is where basically all of their code is kept in one single large repository, uh, which Git does not handle particularly well. And I think that they've made some customizations to Mercurial, in particular the way that it actually stores uh, the code on the back end. Um, so I, I think that rather than you know storing it on one single disk, they actually have some sort of you know network file share or something like that. Um, and I believe that they may have been easier to do in Mercurial than it is in Git, uh, but I don't have the, the, <laughs> the finer details on why that's the case. Okay, sure. Fascinating. Okay, so I'll, I'll save that for another show. Obviously, this is you know that's kind of a deeper subject down the rabbit hole than... <laughs> Uh, we're trying to get with this episode. So let's let's talk about Git workflows, like how your average blue-collar developer is working with Git. So first of all, what is a Git workflow? Uh, so a Git workflow really just so Git is a fairly uh, flexible tool at the end of the day, <laughs> um, and there's a lot of a lot of uh, I believe one of the ways that people often described is that it gives you enough rope to hang yourself. Um, it is incredibly powerful, but there is a fairly steep learning curve, uh, particularly in a in a team context. And, and anyone who has worked with Git in any significance has hung themselves. <laughs> That's right. I mean, several like times. Speaking from personal experience, like I swear, like uh, internships. Internships are all about hanging yourself with Git. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, merging in the wrong direction, or accidentally rebasing history away, or yeah, um, and then you know just cloning from the server and starting again. Um, now, uh, so a, a workflow for using Git really just prescribes how your team is going to use Git uh, to to track the history of their code. Um, there's we've experimented with a whole bunch of different workflows at Atlassian um, and with our customers. And the one that we've kind of settled on uh, is this idea of uh, feature branching um, or issue branching. Um, so uh, one of our products is a, a relatively popular issue tracker uh, called Jira. You may have heard of it. Um, basically, the, the, the philosophy we, we use at Atlassian is to have one Jira issue for every uh, branch that we create. Um, so basically, a branch is aligned with a particular bug fix or a particular feature or um, some other you know concrete improvement that we're making to the code base. Uh, we so wait, you, so for every issue you have a branch, uh, and for every branch you have an issue, or is it not necessarily? A converse relationship. Uh, that's the that's the ideal. Um, occasionally, you will get uh, situations where there will be two branches associated with a particular issue, or two issues associated with a particular branch. But that we see that as a little bit of an anti pattern. Typically, that that will only happen um, where you haven't sort of chunked your issues uh, correctly, uh, <clears throat> or if there's some other reason you need to uh, basically keep the changes associated with a single issue um, isolated on two different branches, um, which, which may occur if you have two repositories uh, that need changes to be made uh, to them. So a branch um, exists only within a single repo. You can't kind of create a branch that spans multiple repositories. Um, talk, talk more about what makes a good workflow. I mean, you've already mentioned one 
nice pattern, which is maybe you have a branch for every issue or an issue for every branch. What are other characteristics of a good Git workflow that can help us understand the nature of what a Git workflow even looks like for people who, who may not be as familiar with Git or a workflow within Git? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So uh, kind of the reason we create the branch in the first place uh, is to keep all of the changes that you're trying to make uh, associated with this new feature or bug fix or whatever you're doing um, isolated and, and apart from the work that the rest of your team is doing. Um, and ostensibly, the, the reason we do this is to make sure that our master branch um, is kept stable so that uh, other developers can go and you know, create their own feature branches off master and then merge them back in um, and then re- eventually release that to the customers. Uh, so the the, the main idea behind this branching concept is to have isolation for your code. Uh, now, so in order to achieve this, uh, we basically ensure that uh, all of the, the work associated with this particular issue is complete um, on that branch. Um, we make sure that it's uh, peer-reviewed uh, using another Git technology um, called a, a pull request. Um, and we make sure that all of the tests uh, associated with all of our different builds, so unit tests, functional tests, database tests, everything, uh, is passing on that branch before we merge it back into master um and that's kind of the the general the general idea and for teams that are already working with git they have a functional workflow with git but maybe they have you know things that they're anti-patterns that develop within git um what is the difference between a good workflow and a great workflow (laughs) good question so yeah so um, sometimes you'll see teams using Git, uh, but kind of using it just like subversion. So you look in their repository and they maybe don't have uh, more than one branch. They, or maybe they'll have a couple of branches, like one that represents master and maybe... And this is this is how I worked with Git in college. Ah, like I <laughs> didn't understand the concept of branching. I was like, okay, here's just this thing that saves my code. Totally. And I would, it was almost like the control S for my code is how I used it. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, and that, um, and to be honest, to be totally honest, like for some of my personal projects where I'm literally the only developer, I still use it just like that because it's kind of convenient just to have this uh, this you know, set of history that you can roll back and investigate if you need to. Um, although in some cases, I find it is still useful to create branches even for a, a one user project just to keep that that isolation there because um, the the corollary of that of having these isolated branches is that you you always have this stable master branch, so you know that uh, you know anything that's sitting on master is ready to release. Um, another common anti-pattern that we see is uh, not so much creating too many branches, but creating a branch that is too long-lived. Um, so one of the, the downsides of branching and merging a lot uh, is merge conflicts, where you basically change, make some changes to a file that someone else has changed um, uh, on a separate branch, and then when you try to merge those two changes back together, Git, although it is very, very good at merging, can't resolve those without a, a human to come in and, and uh, fix that for you. Uh, so one way that we try to minimize that at the last scene is to keep the branches as short-lived as possible. Um, and this actually impacts a whole uh, the way the way that you do planning as well. So like uh, you know we do a lot of all of our teams do some sort of agile development. Um, and in our planning meetings, we have to kind of consider uh, whether a particular story that we're taking on board or a particular issue or bug fix is going to take so long to implement that it's likely to result in a, a long-lived branch, which will potentially you know, <laughs> mean that we have these horrific merge conflicts that we have to deal with later on. Ah, okay. And we'll, we will get into how to deal with those types of merge conflicts and how in general best practices for merges. But um, talking more about workflows, You've said that, quote, every single team has different requirements for their workflow. 
So, um, you know, so far we've kind of been talking about how to use Git in the abstract. What is the difference between how different teams would use workflows differently? Like, for example, um, you know, the workflow of, uh, you know, the Git team or the, t- the team that's using Git to work on OpenSSL, like that would be totally different from a team of college students working on some toy project. And like literally the ideal workflows for these two different types of projects would be totally different. So give some contrast across the different types of Git projects that we could have. For sure, yeah. So I've mainly been talking about the, the workflows uh, used by professional teams, um, which typically is, in my experience, uh, branching workflows. Uh, but certainly for, for large, important open source projects, or, or any kind of open source project, project really, uh, you have the thing called a forking workflow instead. Um, now, the, the big difference, or the big driver uh, uh, for an open source project is that you, you are potentially accepting code from all sorts of people uh, on the internet, right? So you might literally only have a screen name or their Bitbucket or GitHub username uh, to, to relate to them. Um, whereas with a, in a professional team, you typically know a little bit more about them. You might sit next to them or at least you know, you've hired this person to actually work with you on that code. So you have a little bit more implicit trust. Um, so with a forking workflow, uh, the person who's contributing to the repository may not necessarily have right access to the repository. Uh, so what that means is that they uh, grab a, a fork, which is basically very similar to a Git clone, but it's done on the server side. So they create their own copy of the repository they want to contribute to. Um, then they clone that locally, work on it, and then push that back up to the server and request that the project maintainers pull their code into uh, that project, which is actually where the term uh, pull request comes from as well. Like you're, you're literally just requesting that someone pulls your changes into their project. Okay. So, uh, you know, you, you've suggested that branching is the key to avoiding lots of problems. And one of the, uh, one of the patterns that you recommended is, you know, if you have an issue, you know, if you, if you've specifically delineated an issue, you should make a branch for it, or you could make a branch for it. What, what are the, what are some other conditions? Like, what are some other signs that, like, I'm a developer, I'm working, what, what is a sign that I should make a branch? What is a situation that will come up when I, I need to branch? And what are the advantages to doing this branching aggressively? So uh, there's a few, there's, uh, I've been speaking fairly simplistically <clears throat> about uh, the use of branches. So the... Typically, you do create a branch per feature that you're working on. Um, sometimes you might create a slightly longer-lived uh, branch if you're making radical changes to the code base and you just want to kind of do an experimental samurai refactor and see if it works out. Um, but there are other situations where you do actually want to keep some longer-lived branches around. Um, so, for example, if you're shipping, uh, if you're a, if you're a SaaS company, um, you might have two different branches: one that represents the code that's shipping on your production server. So, for example, Bitbucket.org has a a, a master branch, um, and then we also have a staging version of Bitbucket that we run internally, um, which is actually based off a staging branch. Um, it gets even more complicated if you're not a SaaS company, but you actually ship software that is running on your um, computer, on your uh, clients' machines, you know, in their data centers. Um, because then you have this, uh, you may have multiple stable release versions that you're maintaining. Um, and the way that we usually do that is to create a separate long-lived branch for each major version that we're currently supporting. 
So for, for Bitbucket Server, for example, um, our, I think our policy is to, uh, if, if, there's a, if a security issue occurs, um, so for example, if we find out that there's some feature of Git uh, that we need to, to lock down in, uh, in Bitbucket Server, um, then we'll actually release uh, new point releases or, um, for, or new minor releases for everything that's been released, every major version that's been released in the last six months. Um, so we, we, that basically means that we've got, uh, I think it's must be like 12 major release branches that these uh, hotfixes will have to be, go back and be applied to. Um, and then you have to cut. So you, you basically end up creating a branch from the earliest uh, or the, the, the oldest uh, version that's still supported and then merging that forward to each of the, the subsequent uh, release branches. <clears throat> okay. So since we are talking about branching and, you know, you've mentioned merging a little bit, let's define what exactly happens during a merge. What is a Git merge? So uh, a git merge uh, it basically is all it's doing is creating a new commit uh, that instead of having uh, one parent, which is kind of the, the version of your code base immediately before you created the commit, um, it actually has two. It has your the, the tip of your branch and the tip of the branch that you're being that you're merging into. Uh, so that'd be something like master or staging. Um, <clears throat> now the way that git actually stores uh, your code under the under the covers uh, is it actually just Point, uh, <laughs> it it, it uh, has an object called a tree, which basically is uh, it's similar to like a directory uh, on a file system, um, and that tree represents uh, the root level directory of your entire project, um, and then that has a whole bunch of nested subtrees and blobs uh, that uh, basically represent the, the file content in your repository. Um, so what this means is that Git is actually storing your entire repository, uh, all, all of your code uh, in its entirety every like every single time you create a commit. Um, but it's very good at uh, reusing objects and or blobs and trees that haven't changed in between commits. Um, so that, that merge commit that you create uh, literally is just a, uh, a, a new version of your code base that has the changes from your master branch and the changes from your feature branch and then combined together. So there's also a term that we could discuss here called a git rebase. What is a git rebase? Uh, so a git rebase is kind of a catch-all term. Uh, so the, the git rebase command is, is pretty powerful and does a whole bunch of stuff. Um, but what it, what it really allows you to do is rewrite the history of your git repository. Um, so you can do this to uh, you can use do this to sorry use rebase to uh, to achieve a few different things. You can uh, squash commits together. Um, so so one of the reasons you might do that is if you're trying to create, uh, keep like a fairly clean Git history where each commit represents one logical change to your code base. Um, if you've created sort of three commits that relate to the same bug fix, then potentially you might combine those together into one single commit. Um, you can also do things like reorder commits. Um, so if, if there's a if you're going to have someone review the changes you've made on your branch, you might want to reorder it so that uh, you know all of your functional work comes first, and then you know you add some documentation and a later commit, so it makes it easier for the reviewer to understand what's going on. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff you can do, like going back and actually tweaking uh, the the changes that have occurred to particular files um, in commits as well. So when I was getting started as a developer and I was starting to learn Git, my initial understanding of it was that it, this is kind of this like linear thing. And uh, as you go forward in time, uh, it becomes very difficult to, to reach backward in time uh, along the genealogical tree of a Git repository. But, um, you know, 
that understanding has evolved over time. And as you know, as I'm as I'm talking with you, um, perhaps it's more of if you have the right skills with Git, uh, it becomes much easier to move around in that genealogical history of a Git tree and uh, and reassemble different pieces of history into the correct type of Git repository that you want. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it, it does take a little while to, to get to grips with it, but um, traversing the, uh, the 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 actual Git data model to figure out you know what's happened to your code base and how to and how to reorder that and replay that history uh, definitely gets gets easier uh, over time. Um, one of the the biggest sort of turning points for me with my understanding of DVCS and Git uh, was actually going and reading a little bit about the underlying data model, um, because it is actually a relatively simple uh, simple data structure at the end of the day. Um, and once you kind of grok that, you start thinking of all of the different operations like commits and merging and branching and rebasing as operations on that data model, as opposed to kind of the, the logical abstraction of what, what it's doing to your, uh, your repository history. There's a, a really good book uh, or ebook uh, by a guy called uh, Scott Chacon, um, who used to work for GitHub and is a, a Git contributor uh, called ProGit. Um, and it's like, I think it's only like 12 relatively short chapters, like each chapter is maybe, you know, a couple of thousand words. Um, but it's a, it's a great primer on kind of under, getting like grokking how Git works under the hood. Uh, and I can highly recommend checking that out if you want to <laughs> learn some more about it. Totally. Uh, and I've, I've read parts of that and I'll put it in the show notes. Um, so let's, let's talk about some, you know, tangential topics that are related to Git. Let's talk about continuous integration. Um, so we've done plenty of shows on continuous integration. I think the listeners understand what it is. It's kind of the policy of, you know, whenever you push code, it has to pass all the tests um, before it gets integrated uh, into the rest of the code base. And it kind of puts this check, um, this this benchmark of quality between new code and the master branch. Um, that's a simplistic explanation, but um, without going too much into continuous integration itself, how did continuous integration work in systems before Git? Like back in the days of centralized version control systems, did people actually use continuous integration? Uh, yeah, they absolutely did. Um, Git has some pretty cool features, particularly feature branching, um, that make CI a lot more powerful. Um, the way that it used to be uh, with continuous integration is it, the, the, the traditional wisdom was to just build uh, your your trunk branch uh, with Subversion, uh, for example, to make sure that all of the tests are passing. And in fact, that's where the where the term integration comes from, because you're, every time you're, you a developer integrates their changes into trunk, the continuous integration build runs off and builds your code and makes sure that you haven't broken anything. Um, now, the, the problem with centralized version control systems is that you have to actually create this commit on your trunk branch for the CI system to run, um, which means that if you do break the build, uh, then that's going to hurt the rest of your team because they're going to have to basically down tools and stop creating commits until you go and fix it. Uh, I can jump into why, how Git makes that uh, a, a lot better if you like. <laughs> yeah, please do. Yeah. That's perfect. So, so uh, one of the... The other, the other thing you notice, other than just breaking the build, is that continuous integration uh, builds can take a long time, uh, particularly as your code base grows and you write more tests. Um, so uh, you end up with this problem where developers, it's become sort of un 
impractical for a developer to run their tests locally. Uh, so they end up actually just pushing to the server and then praying that it, they, they don't break something. Um, now with Git, because you have this idea of creating a branch and isolating your changes on that branch, um, modern continuous integration servers uh, allow can actually detect when you push a new branch to the server and build that branch, even though it's still being isolated. So the term continuous integration is sort of a, a misnomer uh, now with Git because you're, you're, it's still isolated. You're just running the, running the tests uh, against that particular branch. Um, and this has actually like fundamentally changed the way that I work because before being the paranoid junior that I was working with Subversion, I'd basically run all of the tests locally before I created the commit. So that meant that my machine was sitting there chugging away for you know an hour plus trying to get all of the tests for Jira or Fisheye Crucible or whatever project I was working on uh, to, to, to give me the green light to create the commit. Now with Git, because I've got feature branches, I can basically push my feature branch to the server um, and Atlassian Bamboo, our continuous integration tool, detects that, runs all the tests for me and then sends me a nicely formatted HTML email saying, hey Tim, you broke four tests on this branch. Um, and then I can go and fix that at my leisure once it's already done. Um, so that means that instead of uh, you know waiting for the tests to pass, I can switch context to create a new branch and start working on another issue um, rather than having to wait for this build to pass. Can you talk more broadly about the continuous integration uh, process at Atlassian or maybe the just the process of how you collaborate with other people? For kind sure. of the, te- the team workflow, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as I mentioned before, when you create a, a branch, there's a, there's a bunch of things you need to do before you merge that branch back into master. Um, at Atlassian, our policy is to have uh, at least two other Atlassians uh, review that code um, using a pull request, um, have all of the builds passing, um, and then have any rework uh, that was raised as part of the review process, either completed on the branch or um, if it's sort of non-critical uh, to have new Jira issues raised to address that in the future. And then ideally have those scheduled um, depending on the, the priority of that work. Um, and then once, so once those uh, kind of conditions are met, then you can merge your branch into master um, and have that, well, eventually ship to your customers. Um, but there is actually an interstitial stage uh, before that code uh, ships. Um, and that's uh, we have because we build large uh, we largely build our developer tools. Um, we believe very heavily on uh, dog fooding our uh, our products, uh, which is the idea of running your software internally uh, before you ship it to your customers, so that if there are any problems, you, you catch that before your end users feel the pain. Um, so typically, what happens when you merge a branch into master at Atlassian? is it actually gets deployed to a uh, our staging server. Um, so for, for Bitbucket server, for example, we have a, a large internal Bitbucket server instance. Uh, and every time someone on the Bitbucket server team merges a feature, that triggers a redeploy of our Bitbucket server to our staging instance, um, which is a, a little bit scary at first to, to adopt because if you, you know, if you do something that fundamentally breaks uh, the application on a branch and then merge it, uh, and for some reason the tests don't catch it, then you, you do end up causing some serious downtime for your team. But better to break out Atlassian than to break your customers. Exactly, exactly. That's the, that's the whole idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so within that conversation, you just stressed the importance of code review, and it's it's really difficult to overstate the importance of code review. And um, you know, people who may may not have worked at large organizations or organizations that just have a code review process may not really understand this. So, where? Where should code review fit into a team's workflow and why is code review so important? Um, so I'm a, a pretty passionate supporter of, uh, of code review. Um, I, I 
partly instilled in me because I used to work on uh, Crucible, one of our earlier uh, code review products, um, and more recently on Bitbucket, which of course supports our pull requests. Um, but we basically have all code that ships to production or ships to our customers uh, reviewed um, in some way. Uh, and uh, so the way that that fits in uh, is at the point where you're uh, just before you, you merge your code uh, into master. So basically it should be feature complete um, or at least you should think it's feature complete before you, uh, you raise the pull request. So as not to, to raise uh, to waste the rest of your team's time. Um, and it should also be passing the tests at that point. And you should have already written any new tests associated with that feature as well. So that the, the uh, rest of your team can review it um, on some of our teams as well. Uh, we've been experimenting with this new process of actually, actually checking out developer-facing documentation into the repository as well. Um, so you have these nicely formatted markdown files that contain uh, documentation for our APIs and SPIs. Um, so if you introduce a new API or if you uh, enhance uh, the functionality of one of our SPIs, then uh, as a developer, you should be ensuring that the new documentation is done on the same branch. Um, so that means that you, you, your, the other developers uh, who potentially be consuming these APIs uh, will actually be able to review the docs and make sure they're complete before it gets merged and, and shipped. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. No, no, no. That's, that's, a, that's a very good, uh, good explanation of the, the importance of code review. Um, so this kind of segues into the topic of pull requests. Um, for listeners who are less familiar with this topic, I know you touched on pull requests earlier, but um, in my experience, pull requests can be a uh, kind of a tough term for some people to grasp fully i mean what so a pull request where what is being pulled in a pull request uh who is pulling it where is it being pulled into describe what a pull request is um so a pull request uh it sounds like kind of a, a scary bit of jargon but really at the end of the day it's just a diff um it's a the the actual term comes from uh you as a developer are requesting that the rest of your team pulls your changes into the the, the master branch or the, whatever you call the main branch of your repository and it ships to your customers um the the way that it manifests uh in terms of the the product's uh, user experience uh is that you have a basically a, a, a list of files uh, that changed that have changed on your branch um and then you have an actual diff uh that's generated which is basically a, a a text file, a text view of the file with some syntax highlighting and some red and green lines uh, showing exactly what you've changed. Um, and then your team can leave feedback on that diff uh, by adding comments, uh, which are nicely threaded so you can respond um, and you know, give your two cents on what, what you think should be done. And, uh, and then the author can respond and sort of say what they're going to do about it. Um, uh, then there's kind of a, a few different, uh, I guess, social, uh, more interesting bits of uh, the way that developers work together uh, on, on pull requests. Um, certainly, <laughs> it, it can take a little while for a new team uh, as part of kind of the bonding process to figure out how they communicate. Um, and uh, But ultimately, the, the approach that we take at Atlassian is that the author is the person who owns the code. Um, and so that any discussion around what the, uh, around feedback on the pull request should be done in sort of a respectful manner. Um, due to that and then that the developer should be uh you know convinced in the nicest possible way to make changes rather than you know uh sort of authoritarian saying that they need to make these particular changes regardless of uh you know the developer's official title or, or whatever so just to put a finer point on that um i'm a developer i've developed something that i want to ship uh and the rest of my team 
team needs to approve this. So I make a pull request to say git pull, whatever. And that essentially gets queued up for code review at that point. It gets, it gets uh, pulled in to the degree to where other people can see it. And if they approve it, then it will make it through and be merged with whatever else. Yeah, that's is that ex- accurate? Uh, that's exactly right. It, with the the only thing is that the the concept of a Git of a pull request um, isn't actually native to the Git uh, Git binary or Git, Git uh, tool that you install locally. Um, it's typically a feature of the uh, Git hosting software that you're using. Um, so mm-hmm. Git uh, being a distributed version control system, when you interact with it, you have a local copy of the repository. Uh, but then there is also a sort of central, despite the fact that it's a distributed version control system, there will be a central copy of that repository somewhere uh, that your team is contributing back to. Um, so at the last end, we use uh, either Bitbucket Cloud or Bitbucket Server, depending on the, on the team. And then both of those tools have a pull request feature uh, where you basically pick two branches and then pick reviewers and then uh, it generates the diff and tells them that they need to go and review these changes that you've made. So we've been talking about fairly specific Git tactics and Git workflows. Um, I'd love to get an impression for how Git usage and developer workflows are evolving that's a good question. I think um, so. At the moment, um, I do do quite a lot of Git evangelism, and generally, when I when I poll the audience and, and talk to people after a presentation, um, I think that there's still a lot of people just trying to get Git right. <laughs> um, so, like, you still see a lot of people either migrating to like just the basics. Like, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, like just getting feature branching right, just you know figuring out that you know how to use rebasing effectively, um, just figuring because it's not easy. No, not at all. Not at all. It is. Uh, Git's been described uh, quite often as a, a fairly leaky abstraction. Like you, you get all these analogies of like you know what Git is, um, and, but at the end of the day, I, I think Git really is just Git, <laughs> which is why why going off and sort of reading about the Git data model is almost like necessary to um, to sort of understand how to use it effectively. <laughs> like because there's all of these like little arcane commands that don't sort of matter. They're not they're not really intuitive um, until you kind of understand how git is uh and and material as well uh, trying to solve version control what about for like a bleeding edge team like you know if you're at atlassian you guys are all git experts because you're working on developer tools is there anything like that you guys are doing that is just you know since you're all kind of at that advanced level of git you're all at that level of sophistication where you can almost communicate without words are are there any like (laughs) like advanced special moves you guys are using with git yeah totally so i mean we've kind of described the the basic branching and merging workflow um the 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 next level i would say is the a rebase workflow um and the idea here is to manipulate the history of your git repository as you write it um so that it's cleaner to browse later on um so one of the problems with introducing merge commits uh is that it makes the the history of your repository a little bit harder to to follow um or you have to be a little bit fancier in the in the commands that you run on the git log whereas uh there are a few things you can do to actually make it appear uh that rather than creating all of these branches and um uh, you know sort of uh, and creating all of these merge commits uh all like your repository is just one sort of continuous set of near perfect commits that have been created by this kind of magical super developer um so the, the way that we see that uh, now to be honest not everyone at, at atlassian does this and i don't know of any teams at atlassian that do this in its entirety either um one of the reasons being that the, the problem with this is with any kind of uh, re- 
rewriting Git history, you can run into serious problems and impact the rest of your team if you get it wrong. Um, but quite often, uh, developers will, uh, well, the, the kind of golden rule we have is that you can rewrite history as much as you like, as long as you're only rewriting history that has been created on your local uh repository copy and hasn't been pushed to the server. So quite often this means that I'll uh, I'll work on a feature and maybe won't push it to the server or will push it to the server, but on a private branch. Um, and then I'll rewrite the history of that branch so it looks nice and neat before I share that with the rest of my team. Um, and then when I'm ready to apply that uh, to the master branch, rather than creating a, a merge commit, um, either using the, you know, the pull request merge button or by running the git merge command uh, explicitly, uh, I'll do a thing called a fast forward merge, uh, where basically I just take all of the changes on that branch, squash it down into one commit, and then put that on top of the master branch. So it looks like I've just committed straight to master. Um, and then that makes history traversal a, a lot easier in the future. Are there any underutilized features of Git you can expound on? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, the, there's a few. So particularly around history traversal, uh, the, the git log command um, is the, the basic command that you can use to list the commits in your git history. Um, there's a, a cool uh, way you can search through your git history called the pickaxe command, um, which actually lets you search through diff text. So if you were saying, if you noticed that a particular line had disappeared from a file, or if you were, you know, you were sure that there, there, was a, there was a function named this here before, but someone must have deleted it, um, that can be a pretty hard thing to, to figure out, right? Because searching for something that's emitted is, is impossible if you're just looking at a static like snapshot of a file. Um, but the uh, pickaxe command, which is uh, git log dash capital S, um, followed by the string that you're searching for, will actually go back through your history and search for that particular string token in, in your diff text as well. Um, that sounds pretty useful. It's like grep. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Um, in fact, there's also a git log dash dash grep, <laughs> which you can use to grep through the contents of uh, a particular commit. Um, so if you're, uh, it, it's also significantly faster than just running grep over your, your file system because it goes through and touches all of the, the git, git objects instead. Um, actually, I'm not, I'm not quite sure how I've managed to get those uh, those performance improvements over, over regular grep, but it is blindingly fast if you give it a try. Mm. Um uh, what else? I oh. also hear about Git bisect. Oh yeah, Git bisect is pretty cool. Um, so Git bisect uh, basically does a, uh, a a binary search of your repository's history. Uh, so you can give it a, a starting commit um, and an ending commit, um, and then you can get it to walk through your history looking for some condition in your code base. Uh, so quite often you can use Git bisect uh, if you've discovered a regression um, or a customer's discovered a regression, uh, and you're trying to figure out when that was introduced. So you can write if you can write like a small script uh, that you know exits with a, a zero error code um, if uh, or a zero status code if the the condition isn't present, but exits with a non-zero error code if the condition is present, uh, then you can pass that to the git bisect command and it'll go off and do a, a binary search of your repo's history looking um, for the particular commit where this uh, this problem was first introduced. Um, and that actually, the, the bisect command, um, although it can, you, you can teach bisect to cope with uh, things like branches. Um, the, if you do have like a linear history uh, from using rebasing, that makes the bisect process a lot, a lot simpler. Um, and I think overall reduces the number of bisect operations that need to occur. 
So I'd love to talk some about the SaaS products that are built around Git. Uh, there are a number of them, including many that have been developed at Atlassian, or, well, some that have been developed at Atlassian. So, for example, let's talk about Bitbucket. Let's talk about Bitbucket Server, uh, which is a product you've worked on at Atlassian. Give me an idea of why I need, why do I need a software-as-a-service uh, company to manage my Git repositories? Uh, so the, I mean, so Git actually ships with a built-in Git server uh, called the the Git daemon. Um, so you can actually run Git or the Git. Uh, the, if you install Git, you can actually host your own Git server. Um, the problem comes when you want to work with a team in that context. Um, so the the value proposition for running uh, a, a Git a piece of Git server software uh, is that it can do things like administer permissions around uh, your repositories. Um, it can allow users to create new repositories on the fly. Um, so one of the the common patterns with Git is that you end up creating a lot of little uh, repositories, um, particularly with the kind of the, the trend around microservices at the moment. Um, and uh, you know, did you having small components uh, that do that do things uh, or that uh, that do sort of fairly defined well defined things um, is that you have a separate repository for each library or, or microservice that you're running. Um, it also allows you to have a slightly nicer UI for doing things like browsing through your repository's history um, and or browsing through lists of commits. <clears throat> Uh, which is uh, nice if you want an alternative to stringing together git log commands uh, <laughs> on the command line. Um, and it also allows you to sort of collaborate with your team uh, around things like pull requests um, and some other fancier features like uh, branch permissions. So for example, uh, Bitbucket Server and Bitbucket Cloud both allow you to restrict uh, write access to, to individual branches if you like. So you can actually enforce uh, that your team uses a branching workflow rather than uh, you know just kind of relying on their, their good nature to not not commit directly to master. Okay, great. So, uh, and let's talk about like the, the broader, like the broader software ecosystem. Cause like, you know, kind of the Atlassian product offering is that, uh, okay, now that you've got your Git stuff hosted on Atlassian, you might as well get, you know, these other Atlassian products because they integrate well with what you will already have. So if, for example, like Jira, you know, you make an issue and like you already said earlier in the conversation, since, uh, since you might want to have a branch associated with every issue, that gives you an incentive to, to uh, get to use Jira. Um, so give me an idea of like the macro perspective since we're, we're kind of, you know, we're running towards the end of this conversation, but I'd love to get like a macro perspective for how Atlassian sees software development and how the product suite fulfills that mission. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, as I mentioned before, we heavily dog food all of our own products internally. So, so quite often we'll kind of build a new feature and then play around with it and evolve it for a few months before we actually ship it out to our customers, depending on uh, what it is, just to make sure that we get it right. Um, so, one of the things we've been working on there is is heavy, uh, sophisticated integration between Jira and Bitbucket um, to kind of really ex- uh, extend that concept of having one issue per branch. So, if now these days uh, you can do things like create an issue is create a branch directly from Jira. Um, so it and it automatically names the branch after your Jira issue and you know injects the issue key and the summary and all that kind of stuff for you. Um, and then moving forward, it kind of binds those two together so that uh, one of the problems.
problems certainly that I've personally had, despite being a, an ex-Jira developer, uh, is that I, I quite often, in crunch times, focus on writing the code rather than you know going and updating Jira every time I make a change. <laughs> um, so these days, uh, Bitbucket and Jira actually communicate, and Jira will automatically update itself based on the state of the, uh, the code in your repository. Um, so for example, if I uh, create... Uh, the way our workflow is set up with, uh, with triggers at the moment is that if I create a branch... Uh, it'll automatically transition my Jira issue into in progress. Um, then if I create a pull request, it'll transition it to in review. And then when I merge that pull request, it'll transition it into done. So I'd, uh, provided you're happy to, to you know, uh, buy into the, the feature branching workflow, which um, the, the issue branching workflow, which we, we, uh, we evangelize, uh, then it makes things really, really convenient for that matter. And I think we'll continue uh, sort of picking the, the developer practices that we think work best internally and, and building those into our products. So since we're talking about paid software and talking about Atlassian at this point, tell me about, I mean, you've been at Atlassian for a while now. I don't know how many years, like three or four years? Uh, almost 10, actually. <laughs> almost 10. Yeah, okay. actually, I started wow, okay. as an intern at college uh, and then I've just, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, amazing. Fun. So give me an idea of the software culture of Atlassian and how that has evolved and how that is reflected in the business and the products of Atlassian. Ooh, it's a good. It's a good question, actually. It's kind of a. So we're a very engineering-led organization. Um, one of the the interesting things uh, that, and I can't really contrast it to other software development firms very well, effectively, because I haven't actually worked at another software development firm. But from what I hear uh, from people first coming in, is they, uh, particularly engineers, love the fact that engineering kind of permeates every uh, every business unit that we have here and you get kind of the opposite reaction from people who work who, from non-engineers who come in because they can feel a little bit intimidated uh so so one of the examples uh, is that every one of our company values is uh open company no bullshit um and what that means is basically everything uh is public by default on our internal wiki um so that means that you get engineering engineers coming in and commenting on like draft marketing communications or draft hr policies or draft <laughs> <laughs> or all this other sort of content that may not be like specifically engineering uh, focused, but does kind of, but does well at the end of the day uh, impact the way that we uh, develop our software and the way that we work. Um, we, the other thing we, we try and do at Atlassian is encourage uh, as much sort of creativity and autonomy as possible. Um, so we, we, uh, abide by the the twenty percent rule, um, just like Google does. We have yeah, and we have we do th sort of some structured twenty percent uh, time stuff as well. So we have these uh, innovation. Some teams do rather than kind of individual uh, twenty percent time. They'll do innovation weeks uh, once every four weeks or once every release, uh, where they will uh, basically go off and as a team work on individual project that, projects that they're particularly interested in. Um, we also do things like uh, uh, ship it competitions, which is like a quarterly hackathon where everyone uh, downs tools on their regular projects and works towards a uh, well, basically whatever they think will <laughs> will win that win that win the hackathon. Um, and uh, we've, we've actually had a whole bunch of new, really cool product features and entirely new products uh, that spun out of that. So uh, Bitbucket Server, for example, um, was the product of like a 24-hour hackathon where someone was like, hey, we should we should build an actual like Git hosting solution that we can ship to customers. So um, Atlassian makes tools for developers almost uniformly. That Those are most of the products that they make, that Atlassian makes. Um, my vision for the knowledge workers of the future is that uh, other types of work will look increasingly like software engineering does now. Um, 
does Atlassian share that vision long term? Like, are you guys eventually going to be building, you guys and girls, are you going to be eventually building tools for, I don't know, investment bankers and, um, you know, marketers and all kinds of other roles or? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, okay. uh, so we uh, up until kind of early last year, I, w- I would say absolutely that our kind of core market was software developers. Um, and it's still kind of a large part of our bread and butter. Um, but we actually split Jira uh, into three different products uh, towards the end of last year. So now we have this uh, Jira software, Jira core and Jira service desk. Uh, offerings um, and Jira Core is actually primarily targeted at business users um, rather than kind of software development users. Uh, so Jira Software has like our you know agile development boards. So this is like the issue tracking service for the knowledge worker. Exactly. Something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Totally. Totally. Um, and the reason we did that is because we saw all of these really interesting use cases of Jira. I mean, as, as Core Jira is kind of like a, a work like a, a fairly powerful workflow engine. Um, sure. So, yeah. No, you see that with Trello, and Trello is much more of a bare bones. Uh, service than Jira. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so you see all of these kind of like there's this need for tracking stuff, right? <laughs> so like, yeah, we, we saw Jira being used for like asset management, and uh, you know, I think there was a story that asset had, management. Yeah. Wow. Oh yeah, totally. You know, people create an issue that represents like a keyboard or something like that on an <laughs> IT team. Um, there's a story which I actually probably need to verify, um, but I, I think that the I remember hearing way back around uh, Hurricane Katrina. Um, FEMA were using Jira to uh, manage like relocations of, uh, of families that need, like needed houses, and the, the reason that came up is because they were using it in a really strange way, like they were moving issues between projects rather than kind of defining a workflow for, <laughs> for them, which became like a support case for us. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. So there's kind of all of these really interesting businessy uh, use cases for Jira that, that sort of uh, go beyond just software development. And we, we see all these uh, decided to kind of split that out. And, and similarly, uh, HipChat, our chat service, uh, is also used by not just software developers, but business teams as well. Um, and the whole uh, chat ops movement is getting really interesting there too, because we're, we, we're building all of these integrations that initially kind of targeted software developers, but can also be used uh, by non-software developers in kind of a, a software type way. <laughs> and like, so you see services like Ift, uh, for example, that you know brings programming and programming like concepts to the masses. And I think it is kind of the command line of the future, the chat box. Yeah, that's that, that's a cool way to put it. I think it's a <laughs> the amount of stuff you can do just by you know typing a message into a room these days is almost kind of scary. Uh, yeah. Like we have a uh, we, we actually have the the ability to to well we we did up until recently at least uh, the ability to deploy to production uh, from you know our Bitbucket chat room, <laughs> provided you're the right person giving the message, uh, which is pretty pretty cool and pretty uh, pretty intimidating at the same time. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Tim. Um, I know we're running out of time. So thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. This has been an awesome conversation. Um, I'm a huge fan of Atlassian, and you guys released some sweet products that I've used in the past. So thank you so much for doing great work. Oh, thanks very much for the opportunity, Jeff. 